Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for being with us, letting us be part of your day. Hope you are safe and well as we continue moving through this uh, crisis situation, starting to see some signs of... uh, getting out a little bit more and that's become controversial as some places can open some businesses starting to open some cannot always seems to me kind of lost in all this is in this big debate of whether or not you open up a business and whether it's safe at some point consumers will say we will say we'll decide whether or not we think it's okay and safe to go in there or not you know let let us make some of those choices and and decisions as well so uh, we're starting to see that state by state town by town urge you all to be careful make good choices and decisions meanwhile planting is rolling in some places still just trying to get started in other places but the the planting numbers uh, yesterday showing a big jump as we expected we'll be talking more about that throughout this week and start getting planting updates and we have lots to talk about today the the hog market situation still in, in tough shape with these packing plants closing down Steve Meyer economist with Kearns and Associates will be joining us a little bit later on to give us his uh, outlook there uh, we're going to talk about rural health care with Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association how are uh, are hospitals in rural America doing during this crisis? Do they have the equipment they need? Are they being overwhelmed in some places? Or is it not as bad as some had thought it would be? We'll get a complete update. And how much assistance are these rural hospitals getting from the government? And, you know, we hear a lot about what's going on in New York City during COVID-19. We're going to go to the state of New York and look at rural New York and the impact of COVID-19 on agriculture in new york and in the northeastern part of the country tom cassidy with ag radio network in new york will be joining us later in today's program so lots to talk about and we're joined now by todd neely from dtn todd thank you for being with us hope you're well yeah you too mike thank you you know i i I mentioned this i find it interesting as politicians debate whether a business should open or not, whether it's safe or not, and certainly we all want to take all the precautions we can. But at some point, you're going to have to let people decide. You know, just because you open a business or a restaurant doesn't mean you have to go to it. I mean, at some point, people will make the choices what they feel safe for them or not. Absolutely. You know, I think, uh, you know, the one thing I think we've learned in these past six or eight weeks, uh, you know, people are being rather cautious. I mean, it's, uh, you, you can't help but be cautious when you see the news reports every day, and uh, you know you hear all the hear all the numbers in terms of people who are coming down with the virus, and you know the the fatality rates, all those things. I mean, it's become part of our national conscience in a way. Um, and, I, and I think you're right. I mean, I think people have the you know they have the ability to make the decisions, and I think most people already have. You know, they've taken a, plenty of steps to be safe. Um, and I, I do think I agree with you. I think at some point, uh, you know, they're going to have to allow some of these places to open up and just allow people to make the decisions. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing it across the country. Grocery stores hadn't shut down and, and things have been flowing pretty normally at grocery stores. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I think the consumer has, uh, you know, they're in the best position to make the best choices. 
Yeah, you know, when I go to the grocery store, and there are a lot of people in there, they're monitoring how many are in there, but still a lot of people in there. I find myself um, very cautious about how close I get to somebody, and I, when somebody gets too right. close to me, I find myself backing off. I think that's become the new normal. Where I mean, we make those adjustments. So, uh, and yeah, we're in a grocery store, so why can't we be in some other store and do those same things? So uh, we'll see how that all plays out. Meanwhile, let's move on to some other things. They're looking at social distancing and meatpacking plants uh, to see if that will help. Yeah, you know, I, I think that that, uh, you know, we, we've heard a lot of anecdotal stories about uh, about what's been going on in a lot of the plants. A lot of these places have already instituted a lot of safeguards, um, you know, so it's uh, outside of what they've already been doing. It really makes you wonder what that in particular is going to mean. Uh, you know, in certain plants, obviously, it's it's hard to social distance at all. I mean, it's a confined space for the most part. Uh, there's lots of people working. You know, lots of lots of necessity to get close from time to time. And so it's really interesting. It's an interesting. Uh, uh, it's an interesting idea, but I, I don't know that how practical that is in some of these plants. I mean, there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of a lot of things going on, and so it really does put uh, the packing industry in a precarious situation. I mean, it is it is getting pretty serious at the moment. Uh, you know, there's starting to be a lot of talk about uh, supplies being disrupted to where grocery store prices are going to begin to rise, and um, so it's uh, I I don't know how far. Uh, the social distancing is really going to go in a plant, but uh, you just keep hoping and, and praying that a lot of these a lot of these plants can get back up to speed 100. percent And what we usually see is consumer prices go up, but the farmer price, the producer price, doesn't. Absolutely, and and that's the thing. You know, we we're seeing a lot of suffering in this industry, and uh, you know, consumers. I I think maybe if anything, in these past several weeks, we we've, we've come to realize how important our supplies. I mean, I think we've always known that, obviously, but uh, when you see situations like this happen, I, I, I think at some point it's going to, uh, it's going to generate a better appreciation for what our farmers are doing, what the, you know, grocery supply chain does. And I, it's, it's a critical industry. Meanwhile, the ethanol plants, many of them idled, shut down, although now people are realizing we need more than just fuel from those plants, things like CO2 and, and, and folks are saying, hey, we need that. So some plants look at maybe opening up for that reason. Yeah, you know, and Mike, I think, uh, you know, we're beginning to see some little glimmers in the market, too. You know, we've seen demand start to rise just a little bit. Uh, it's nothing overwhelming, obviously, as we're still in a really tight situation with fuel supplies overall. And, and uh, you know, demand for fuel, as obviously people are staying home, but uh, yeah, I think these plants, uh, you know, what we've got over 70 of them that idled right now, I think uh, they really do have to look at, at what they're going to do down the road. And obviously they're not going to make a ton of money doing anything outside of ethanol. Um, but we've seen a real, a real, uh, you know, kind of a gathering of, of the minds and people have really started to, to think about what they can do going forward. And I think the hand sanitizer situation is a prime example um, and I suspect that we're going to see more of that. You know, CO2 is a big deal in the beverage industry. And so, uh, yeah, it'd be kind of nice to see some of these plants, uh, see what they can do. Yeah, I think better, greater appreciation for these ethanol plants. Uh, they're not just 
some of them are, you know, are more diversified than others, but what we're seeing is they provide us more than just fuel. I mean, when we look at DDGs for livestock feed and the hand Absolutely. sanitizers, the CO2, so many things. So hopefully a greater appreciation there, and they need some help and assistance uh, through this right now. All right, Todd, stay well. Good to talk with you. Thank you. You too, Mike. Thank you. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Well, we're going to take a look at that uh, packing plant situation and specifically what it's doing to the hog market and for pork producers, some of them looking at having to make some tough decisions on destroying animals, no place to go with them. We're going to talk with Steve Meyer with Kearns & Associates next on AOA. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we're seeing more and more coverage of crops going to waste, animals being uh, destroyed, milk being dumped while people are going hungry. A lot of people wondering how could this be, and we've tried to explain about the the supply chain and the processing part of this that uh, is really bogged down right now, causing a lot of these issues. We're joined now by Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates. Steve, thanks for joining us. And we're now we're seeing these uh, warnings that we're going to, you know, meat's going to be harder to find in in, uh, in our stores, maybe higher priced, uh, things like that. What's your assessment of where the system is at right now? How dire is it right now? Well, um, you know, Mike, you ought to never say well, it's as dire as it could be because it could always be worse. Um um, it's pretty bad, though. Uh, we had uh, tallied up yesterday that we thought about 45% of the packing capacity, the pork packing capacity in the country would be down today. It's not going to be quite that bad. Um, two plants that we thought were going to be uh, dark today, Tar Heel, North Carolina, which is a giant plant, uh, is going to be running somewhere around 50% instead of zero, and Crete, Nebraska, kind of the same deal. So. Uh, it won't be quite that bad, but it's still a very, very serious situation. And it it goes to show you um, this is a marvelous food system we have, but all the parts of it have to work. And if something doesn't work, then it uh, causes some real problems. And that uh, it cannot work for a lot of reasons, and this is one that uh, we really had never contemplated before. And uh, so... Here we are set with um, a lot of product at the farm level and not enough at the consumer level. And uh, it shows you how critical this marketing and transformation system we have really is. And I don't think, I don't think most people ever uh, appreciated that until now. Those of us involved in it, of course, have. And uh, whether it's lettuce or pigs, I mean, you can't, you know, there's uh, there's some value and there's some uh, there's some aspects of value and one of them is product form and the other one is place and so you got to get them in the right spot in the right form. So pork producers facing with faced with some tough decisions. We're hearing about animals being destroyed. Others are trying to kind of basically idle those uh, pigs. Uh, you know, just you know, 
maybe just to see how long they can wait and but they can only wait so long so how they can what is yeah. your assessment of how much are we uh seeing of that around the country are those isolated cases or or fairly widespread no they're going to be well they're 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 pretty isolated so far but they're going to become widespread i mean um we left about half a million pigs out in barns last week that should have gone to slaughter. And basically, Mike, what I do is I take the production over the last six months and I project that out to weekly slaughter totals for our clients. And those weekly slaughter kind of availabilities, I mean, I predict that that's going to be slaughter because that's how many hogs are going to be available. Under normal circumstances, packers will get through the, the amount of hogs that are available. And last week and this week was right at 2.5 million, and we we're gonna we're gonna be lucky to get to one eight or one nine this week. So, um, you know, it's uh, it is uh, the most serious situation I've ever seen in this business. Uh, we have these that number of pigs backing up, and so uh, so far it's been kind of sporadic, but it's going to become much more widespread that we just don't have a place to put these pigs. And you can't. You're right. You can. You can't idle them for a little while, um, but, uh, you know, you can't stop them completely. They're going to keep growing. And we have producers that are started several weeks ago feeding uh, what we would call cooler diets that, uh, you know, have a little less protein, less energy in them, so the pigs won't grow as fast to try to keep them from getting too big. But still, that pig occupies the space that there's another pig coming to fill. And, mm-hmm. um we can double and triple stock those baby pigs into some buildings for a while, and we've been doing that already. But all of that, it's kind of like an accordion, and once you take all the slack out of it, then you've got to do something at the other end. And it's a sad, sad commentary that we have to do this, but um, there is no choice here. And, and you know, um, are we going to run out? We're not going to run out of pork. I mean, we're still almost 2 million head of pigs last week which, uh, you know, there was a day in you and I's lifetime when that was a lot of pigs. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly not nearly as many as we have now. Uh, but uh, we're going to have places and times that consumers will not find pork in the meat case. Um, I think that'll be kind of a rolling basis, but I don't know how packers are going to handle this in terms of what customers get the limited supply and, how, and when they do and how much they get. Uh, so there's going to be some allocation on that. Steve, we look back to that crisis of 98, and what we saw is consumer prices for pork way up, while the producer price, what they were getting for their animals, going way, way down. Are we seeing that spread happening now? Not exactly. Um, There there are a couple of things. Number one is in 98, what we didn't, Mike, I I guess I would take issue with one. We had high, relatively high consumer prices. I don't think the consumer prices went up during that time, but they didn't come down. Okay. Right. <laughs> and, and hog prices crashed. Okay. So the so the the but what happens is the retail sector is the shock absorber. They don't like to change their prices a lot, so they they kind of keep a steady price thing. And if they want to, if they have a, if they get a good buy on several loads of loins, they'll run a feature on loins that week or something like that. But the the base price doesn't change very much. And so when the wholesale price changes, normally the, the, the retail sector is the shock absorber here between what's going on in the industry out here at the supply level and, 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 and consumer demand. And so this spring is a perfect example. We had a retail price back in late February, and, and we saw a huge run-up in wholesale cost as we tried to refill stores 
uh, after the run on meat in March, the retail prices didn't change. Then we saw a crash in the wholesale value as we ended up, well, there's no food service trade, and now we got all this product on our hands, and the retail price didn't change. And now we've run the wholesale price back up to about where it was before all this started, and I don't think the retail price will change much in the short run. Now, if we keep running wholesale prices above 80 cents and up to a dollar, let's say, on the cutout value, then you'll probably see a little bit of upward pressure on retail prices. But I would, I would really hope that retailers are pretty sensitive to this situation right now, and toe the line on those prices. That you know, to their call. Um, but uh, I, I think we had some room in retail prices. Uh, at at that time, I, we may have they may have to go up a bit here as we go in the next couple of months. But hopefully, we'll get the worst of this behind us and start getting more product out to the retail level, which will keep some you know keep supplies up and, and take away that incentive. But all the action so far has been at the wholesale level, and there's been plenty of it, no question about that. Well, as we start to reopen the economy and. Maybe we get some restaurants opening again, even on a limited basis, even as that mm-hmm. demand starts hopefully to pick up, that business starts to pick up. But in, but until we get these plants, you know, workers healthy and plants yeah. at full capacity, it really isn't going to change that much, right, until that gets resolved. No, I agree. I agree. And so one of the things we just talked about, it, uh, our, our, my, my, my colleagues at, at Kearns and Associates talked about this morning, you know, if you were to start getting plants reopened and start killing more hogs, then you're probably going to push wholesale prices down and, and do that, I mean, obviously. But if we, at the same time, start opening food service and start getting more trade in the food service side, that's what we've been missing for about three months now, then, then that could actually keep prices strong even as we increase slaughter back up to where we ought to be. Now, uh, my concern long-term is that we may never go back to 2.755 million head uh, of, of capacity here because of changing working conditions, which will reduce the capacities of the physical plants we have sitting out there. Now, that doesn't mean we won't build some new plants at some point and go on, but with the, the physical structure we have right now, we may not have that kind of capacity just because of the way we have to deploy uh, labor inside that in order to, to, to assure some some health there. And so um, I, I'm afraid we're going to lose capacity even if we go back to where we were, and uh, that is some concern. But uh, some kind of match between a growth, uh, a reopening of food service and the reopening of the reopening of these plants is really needed to pull that product off the market as we increase slaughter back up to normal levels. It just shows again how the system can be and has been very effective and efficient in the past, but when things start getting out of kilter, it really throws the whole thing off. And uh, you're right, it's it's going to be, I think we're going to have to make some big adjustments uh, moving forward because everything isn't going to be the same as it was. Steve, you always give us great insight. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Good day. Take care. Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates. All right, next we take a look at the medical side of this, the health side, the rural health care system. How's it holding up during COVID 19? Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association joins us next on AOA.
Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. USDA says 54% of the nation's winter wheat crop is in good or excellent shape. That's down three points from a week ago. The nation's corn producers making a big jump in planting progress last week. 27% of the crop in the ground as of Sunday. That according to USDA's progress numbers this week. That's a jump of 20 points from the prior week's report and seven points ahead of the five-year average. Spring wheat planting is lagging behind the five-year average at 14 percent, 15 points behind the five-year average. Hog futures trending higher again on this Tuesday. Nearby contracts trading at their best level since earlier this month. If the gains hold through the close, that would make it the third session out of the last four that we've traded higher. Market watchers talking about pork plants staying offline and producers having to resort to euthanizing excessive supplies. An hour into the day, June lean hogs up $4.47 per hundredweight. 59.75. June live cattle up a dollar 25 at 85.30. Feeder cattle August contract up a dollar 30 at 128.77. In Chicago wheat July down a quarter of a cent at 5.24 and a half. Kansas City wheat July five and a half higher 4.85. Minneapolis spring wheat new crop September up four at 5.24 and a half. July corn up a quarter of a cent, 3.13 and a half. July soybeans down a nickel at 8.31 and a half. The Dow is up 180 points, NASDAQ up 24, S&P up 13. June crude oil up 75 cents at 13.53. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Throughout uh, this health crisis, we have talked with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President with the National Rural Health Association, about how the rural health care system was uh, handling uh, the uh, pandemic. Um, and he joins us now. Brock, hope you're well. Thank you for being with us. What is the latest? Have we seen rural hospitals, healthcare facilities overwhelmed by COVID-19, or has the system held up pretty well through this? Well, good morning, Mike, and it's great to be on your show again this morning. Um, I think we're seeing some uh, pockets of COVID outbreaks around uh, the United States and rural communities. Uh, my observation has been that most of those are associated with communities that have uh, meatpacking plants, um, where there have been some uh, uh, outbreaks in, in those facilities that have, of course, uh, then spread throughout the community. So uh, we're looking at places in Kansas, uh, Nebraska, Iowa that uh, have been mostly impacted by that particular problem. So that's uh, that's uh, probably the what we're seeing mostly right now in terms of out, outbreaks. You know, we've seen this, we talk a lot about this, uh, where we see people hungry, but food being destroyed because uh, they can't get it processed and get it to where it needs to go. And we and people see these two extremes. We're also seeing in the healthcare industry uh, the great need for healthcare workers, but at the same time, hospitals, because of financial reasons, having to lay off, let go uh, some of their personnel because other than COVID-19, 
so much of the other work, the elective surgeries and things not happening, not going on. So that puts a financial strain on, on those hospitals. So we're actually seeing some healthcare workers uh, out of out of work at a time when there's such a uh, a demand for that uh, for those services. Can you kind of talk about how that's playing out throughout rural America? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Mike. The uh, since the outbreak began uh, back in March uh, here in this country, uh, we saw two responses: one, those communities that were overwhelmed, and then the ones that uh, uh, clearly had empty hallways because of uh, uh, canceling their elective procedures. Uh, we're seeing now the government, uh, CMS and CDC, has uh, issued uh, direction that will allow for reopening of elective and non-emergency procedures in hospitals on a case-by-case basis uh, based on the spread of COVID in their communities. Uh, the other limiting factor, which is uh, really kind of interesting, is uh, uh, the availability of personal protective equipment, uh, PPE as it's known, uh, we're we're still uh, uh, plagued with that problem. So even if we began to uh, open up our healthcare facilities to emergency and non and elective procedures, non-emergency and elective procedures, we may not have enough PPE to manage both the elective procedures in hospitals and clinics and take care of those healthcare workers on the front line taking care of COVID patients. So that's another limiting factor that we're monitoring and certainly trying to do what we can to help with. How much assistance are rural hospitals getting in these aid packages being passed by Congress? Well, it's um, an amazing turnaround for us in uh, rural America, and that is that Congress, uh, through the various aid packages, has uh, appropriated lots of uh, money for rural health care. So in COVID 4.0, uh, we have the uh, public health emergency uh, for healthcare uh, for hospitals and other uh, providers that is uh, sending out. Uh, that's the hundred billion dollar fund, and uh, fifty billion of that will be released uh, by the end of this week uh, to providers around the United States. Uh, we were very fortunate in working with the administration uh, under Secretary. Uh, Hargan and uh, uh, Secretary Azar and his team at Health and Human Services in getting $10 billion of the uh, the uh, public health emergency uh, fund to be dedicated to rural hospitals and clinics. So uh, they're getting the data together on that program, and we should be seeing that uh, money rolling forward. Uh, to rural providers in the next week or two. So we're very, very, very fortunate to, to have their support. Uh, then finally, the Payroll uh, Protection Program, otherwise known as PPP with the Small Business Administration, uh, that program is uh, really assisting in this second tranche of money uh, to go to rural providers. So um, so I think I think for once we, we see maybe uh, kind of the tide turning in terms of meeting the needs of rural communities and their health care. We're talking with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President with the National Rural Health Association. Brock, has this crisis almost created another health crisis in that we're hearing about uh, people not going to the hospital with other health issues because they're afraid of getting uh, the coronavirus, and that has caused other health issues to increase. Are we seeing more of that? Yeah, so it's it's a classic problem, uh, 
we know that there are several factors that uh, that impact health status, and one of them is delayed treatment. And so through the last month and a half, we're seeing an increase in patients who have basically delayed care because of the concerns that you talked about and the fact that the clinics are are not really opening uh, open as they normally would be to receive patients. So uh, they may be coming to the emergency department um, sicker than they would have been if they had intervened in their care earlier. So I would encourage listeners, um, if you're feeling poorly, uh, if you have a medical condition that uh, uh, that is uh, concerning, uh, the, the risk is uh, small, but you may want to get that looked at sooner rather than later because often that's the best way to take care of a problem like that. Coming into this, we were losing rural hospitals as more and more of them were closing. Do you expect that number to go up more and more quickly? Will it accelerate because of this? Well, we're hopeful with some of the monies that's going out now that this would uh, tie over the uh, facilities uh, through this uh, really desperate time that they're in um, and uh, and keep the closures from occurring, at least uh, for the time being. Um, as we move out of this, uh, you know, going into the next uh, year or so and move into the recovery phase, uh, we may be uh, looking at some increased uh, hospital closures because they may not be able to be restored uh, to the level that they were before this crisis. So we're going to be monitoring that and certainly talking with our um, legislators, uh, both in the Senate and the House, um, on how we can look at a recovery plan that includes rural health care and maybe look at new models uh, that would be more efficient and effective in our rural communities to take care of uh, the, health, health, uh, the health needs of those places. And this recovery, we don't know how long this is going to be going on. And as things start to open up, we're, we're already hearing some predictions. This, you know, this could come back in the fall, and there could be waves of this. So, obviously, it's going to be a, a long-term situation. At least, till we get some kind of a vaccine for it. Yeah, Mike, this is uh, this is going to be a protracted problem that we're not going to be able to solve quickly, unfortunately. Um, so, it's testing. Tracing, contact tracing is an important part of this, and we hope that as we move into this next phase of dealing with the pandemic that we can uh, devote a lot of resources and maybe a lot of our rural hospitals and clinics can be very helpful in the contact tracing uh, surveillance piece. And then, of course, treatment. Uh, We're looking for treatments that can uh, maybe intervene in the care of COVID patients and perhaps uh, reduce some of the severity and then last but not least is vaccines, which um, that's going to be the ultimate uh, intervention that will uh, allow us to fully open up and not be that concerned with uh, contacts with other people. Uh, there are some hopeful uh, signs coming out of uh, the United Kingdom uh, on a uh, vaccine that, uh, that they've just now uh, gotten permission to test on 6,000 people. Uh, so there's some promising news. Uh, now that would still be six months to a year before that would probably be marketed uh, worldwide. But I think that uh, that's something uh, that we're looking ahead towards, uh, certainly to get us open back up once again. In the meantime, we keep hearing about we need more testing, more testing. I think a lot of us that aren't sick, we think, why, why do we need to be tested? And some are saying we need everybody to be tested, then we would know. Are we anywhere close, or how, how do you see us getting to that point where we can do that kind of testing on such a large scale? Well, we really need to focus 
on the testing at the at the point of care. So um, what I think is going to be incredibly helpful is getting the technology and the clinics of uh, physicians and uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants so that um, we can do uh, testing of individuals as part of the routine care. Um, and the asymptomatic people, those that are carrying the disease and actually spreading it, um, are of most concern to us because they may be infecting other people and not knowing it. And so this is where uh, contact tracing uh, comes in so much. Uh, this is an old public health technique. This goes back centuries, actually. Uh, it's nothing uh, really new or, or fancy, but it works. And um, we need to uh, hire probably between 100 and 200,000, possibly as many as 300,000 contact tracers uh, to effectively intervene into the disease so that we don't get asymptomatic people uh, infecting others, which is the biggest part of the problem with this disease right now. Brock, as always, thank you for your time. I know you're extremely busy. We appreciate the updates from you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President with the National Rural Health Association. All right, so if you watch any of the media coverage of uh, COVID-19, you've seen a lot coming from New York City uh, and some of the bigger uh, urban areas within the state of New York. What about the rural areas of New York? We're going to talk with Tom Cassidy, farm broadcaster with the Ag Radio Network, for an update next on AOA. This is a call for all farmers to come to the aid of their beans. Liberty Herbicide can now be applied on your Enlist E3 soybeans. Superior weed control, greater application flexibility, no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Liberty Herbicide battles tough weeds so your beans can live free and grow healthy. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, there has been and continues to be a lot of national media focus on New York City during COVID-19. But we want to look at rural New York. And joining us now is Tom Cassidy, the voice of New York agriculture with the Ag Radio Network there. Tom, thanks for joining us. Hope you're well. Sure. Yeah, we're good. How has COVID-19 impacted New York State agriculture? I think pretty much the same way it has the re- around the rest of the nation. Uh, some of the early frustrations, I think, because I, we had the first processing plant that was closed down uh, as far as beef plants in Pennsylvania, and that was uh, really the only place for fed cattle except for the extremely small USDA plants, and then um, and then a lot of milk being dumped. Yeah. Bring us up to date on the situation for dairy producers. You're in a big dairy area there. Yeah, um, it, it's getting a little bit better. I think they've got a, a handle on the logistics. Um, I haven't heard of any milk being dumped in the last week. If it was, maybe it was some skim milk. I think uh, it was a matter of getting it moved to processors that uh, that were set up to have a line right to the retail retailers and then the consumers uh you know we do have a couple of product plants that are making uh skim milk powder that's not typical of of the northeast so there were some challenges there getting getting things turned around and uh just recently the uh 
the governor, Governor Cuomo, announced a program to help fund some uh, some processors and try to get some workers in there to be doing some extra shifts and uh, and then taking some of that product and, and putting it into food pantries. You know, New York City really is, uh, you know, it's a huge market. You know, there's 12 million, 13 million people in the city. And if you add the next two counties, you're talking about 15 million. The rest of the state only has another 3 million. So, uh, you know, it's... Uh, when when you think of New York, uh, you know, most people think of the city, but um, those of us that are outside of the city are really quite rural. And when we look at the, the Northeast, we've heard about that Delmarva region and chickens being destroyed. Uh, what are you hearing from that area? It, it's just going to take time, you know, uh, especially with the, uh, you know, with the broilers, they you know, they grow fast. So you've got six weeks. And if you've got a plant that's running at half capacity or, or just plain shut down, where are you going to take them? You know, where are you going to take uh, thousands, millions of chickens? I mean, you just, it's it's Im- an impossibility. So, uh, you know, it's a matter of just trying to get people healthy and back into those plants. What are you hearing, uh, Tom, from producers uh, there in New York? What are they it's telling you about their situations and what how they're dealing with it. <laughs> um, it it's it's a lot of frustration. They feel like uh, they're getting a lot of bad PR when they you know you see uh, milk trucks uh, backed up to to manure pits. That's that's tough, especially when you've got uh, retail stores with empty shelves. And now you're starting to see uh, some folks that are. Uh, putting together food drives and and milk drives and people are wondering how come there was that milk dumped how come uh, dfa is putting uh giving milk away but we still can't get it in our grocery store so trying to get that understanding of where those logistics breakdowns are you know farmers are people who just keep working until they get the problem fixed and so now after a couple of weeks they're thinking this needs to get fixed, and why isn't it? And so I think there's some frustration there. Uh, another challenge, I think we've got um, some mid-sized processors as far as uh, slaughterhouses in New York and Pennsylvania that are now uh, kind of running short, and they're wondering, you know, if we're, we're having to euthanize pigs in the Midwest, why aren't we getting them here? You know, and of course, there's logistics challenges there. You know, can you load a trailer of pigs, send them on a 14-hour trip to, to get them slaughtered, especially when you've got a plant that maybe can do, do 200 a day. Uh, it's going to not really make a big dent in, the, you know, the, these large plants that are that are shut down in the Midwest. Yeah, it's what we're hearing all over the country. It's the system that is backed down because of uh, the health of the workers. You know, for all the talk about moving away from humans, moving away from workers and automating and all that, while we've seen a a fair share of that, it still comes down, we need people in these plants doing this work. That's right. That's right. And then, you know, the the challenge is, uh, you know, maybe they're uh, they're considered less skilled and it certainly isn't a job everybody wants to do but so people are saying wait how come we aren't, can't get somebody else in there or you know and then the blame starts to get thrown around why didn't they give them protection we thought we had these uh, two weeks to let the essential workers um, you know 
get straightened around? Why weren't they protected? So I think, you know, anytime we have a, a problem like this, it's easy to look back and say this should have happened and that should have happened. But, you know, I think folks are saying it's time to get it fixed now and, uh, and you know, let's not let this happen again. Any field work going on in New York? Yep. Um, we've actually had some pretty good weather for, uh, for fitting anyways, uh, kind of early to put seeds in the ground. <laughs> uh, I, I, there has been a little bit of corn planted, especially in the Southern tier. I think, uh, um, you know, it's pretty iffy and we had, uh, um, where I am, we had a couple of inches Sunday night about uh 30 miles south there was as much as 14 inches of snow so uh mm. it's it's pretty early for that there might be some uh you know grass seedings alfalfa seedings type thing going in um you know as you get further south into pennsylvania maryland delaware um, you're starting to see more right. uh planting going on well tom good to talk with you stay well and thanks for the update take care certainly bye tom cassidy the New York Ag Radio Network. He's the voice of New York agriculture. Well, that does it for today. Tomorrow, more planting updates and more on COVID-19. Hope you'll join us. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for being with us on AOA. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Network. For farm and ranch information you can depend on and the sources you can trust. Adams on Agriculture and the American Ag Network.